Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians have been adjusting and finding new ways to encourage and edify one another. One of the things we're trying here at End of the Word is a live discussion program every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The program is called Going Deeper Online, and in it I will facilitate a conversation about the previous week's readings in the RMM Bible Reading Plan with several of my friends and fellow users. If you join us live on the End of the Word YouTube page or the End of the Word Facebook page, you can submit questions, and we'll leave some space at the end of each program to address them. You can also send in your questions over the course of the week via the Facebook page. Whether or not we keep doing this after the end of COVID-19 or not, only the Lord knows. But it is a privilege to open the Bible together and to hear from one another what the Lord is saying through His marvelous Word. Thanks be to God. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of Going Deeper Online. Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast, welcoming you to another edition of Going Deeper Online. As always, I'm joined by some fabulous friends. Uh, We have my uh, longtime friend, Mark Bertrand from Simcoe, Ontario, Canada. We have Miranda Webster. I keep saying from deep in the heart of Texas, but you're actually only about a mile from here as the crow flies, (laughs) but uh, good to have you with us. Crystal Humphrey from Calgary, Ontario, Calgary, Alberta, Ontario, Jesse Stewart from Glendale, Kentucky, and then Peter Mahaffey from deep in the heart of Hogtown, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Glad that you are here with us tonight. And remember, you're supposed to say something back when I talk to you. So let's try that again. I'm glad to have you all here with me tonight. Glad to be here. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. We're we're learning this whole Zoom interaction thing, new technology for us. Brother Peter, I wonder if we could get you to open us in prayer tonight. Mm. Father, we thank you for this time that we can fellowship over your word. Mm-hmm. And Lord, we pray that, um, Lord, that we would edify one another as we uh, talk to each other through um, looking at your word. But we also pray that those who are listening and watching would also be edified. Lord, we want to behold wonderful things in your word, not merely for knowledge, but for a deeper love for your scriptures and also ultimately a deeper love for you, our triune God. And so by your spirit, guide this conversation, um, guide us and lead us, and may Christ be exalted through everything that we say and everything that we uh, do here this evening. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the things uh, that we stumbled upon last week, I suppose we've stumbled upon everything. This is uh, sort of a new concept, and we're figuring out it as we go. Uh, but one of the things that, that we heard back from some listeners and watchers that was very helpful uh, was the idea of introducing new books and letters of the Bible as we encounter them in the RMM Bible Reading Plan. Now, last week was unique in that I think we started uh, five new books and letters. So we had lots to cover last week. But then this past week, we only entered into one new book, but it was a big one, uh, one of the biggest ones, and certainly one of the big rocks of the canon, uh, the prophet Isaiah. So, Brother Mark, uh, I wonder if you could just give us a three to five minute introduction uh, to the prophet Isaiah, 
Uh, why should we be listening to, to this prophet? And uh, how does it relate to our lives today? And what's it all about? So Isaiah is uh, rich and glorious and stunning and poetic and filled with good stuff. Uh, I, I once preached Isaiah 40 for 12 weeks, and it was funny because there was an older pastor, part of our, our denomination, and he showed some amazement. He said, how, how can you preach one chapter for 12 weeks? And I said, well, it's easy. You just have to leave some stuff out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I preached Isaiah for Christmas. There's passages in here. Some of the most famous passages in the Old Testament come out of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 6, when uh, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and around him are the angels who are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace mm. and uh isaiah 40 which i memorized and and can quote from heart um finishes up with the words do you not know do you not hear, hear the lord is the everlasting god the creator of the ends of the earth he will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak even youth grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I could keep Mark, going. Mark, just to take you down memory lane, do you remember when we used to sing that at, at the Boys Gym Club of America? Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. I'm, I'm a heartbeat away from singing that right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, that was that was one of my favorite songs as a kid. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord yeah. is the everlasting God. Craig Craig Burroughs wrote That's that. That's right. Oh man, for that for the yeah. And my favorite, I won't quote it, but one of my favorite passages is Old Testament Isaiah forty six, mm. where the Lord says, "I am God, and there is no other." You know, um, there's a weird theory out there, um, and the the and you'll bump into it if you get into Isaiah a little bit. And that's that there are two or sometimes even three Isaiahs. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some distinct divisions in the book of Isaiah where things sort of change. The first one comes at the end of chapter 39, the beginning of chapter 40. The next one comes at the uh, chapter 56 to 66. And uh, so some scholars um, would say there's, there's two different Isaiahs. And, and I, I I don't know where you guys are on this, but I push back pretty hard against that. I think that's the product of 19th century scholasticism yeah. because they say the problem is Isaiah jumps like 200 years. We go from Isaiah set in the time of King Uzziah and speaking to um, King, is it Ahaz? Um, you know, he's right here in this historic moment. And then all of a sudden at Isaiah 40, uh, it's as if he's in exile in Babylon and then mm -hmm. at chapter 56, it's like he's back in Jerusalem after the exile, rebuilding the temple even. And so well, not just two horizons, there's four, right? Like that it's I think they sometimes refer to it as, as uh, prophetic telescoping. Right. Like the, we're seeing four distinct time horizons uh, through the lens of, you know, God's revelation and, and and so sometimes he's speaking about the imminent judgment of northern Israel by Assyria. Sometimes he's speaking about the Babylonian exile 
then he's talking about the restoration, but then he's looking all the way forward to the end uh, through those patterns and paradigms to, to the ultimate work of redemption in Christ and the, even the consummation. So you could argue there are five distinct time horizons in Isaiah, but that doesn't imply multiple authors. It, it implies one inspired author behind it all. Yeah. So if you, if you don't believe in, in prophetic prophecy, then yeah. you have to be like, well, no, how, how in the world could Isaiah know what was going to happen 200 years, yeah. 400 years, 800 years in the future? But uh, I would push back against that and say, no, I think we've got a better answer. Yeah, me too. Um, Mark, one of the things I, I had asked you to do, I, I, I'm not sure if you were able to do it, but if you could maybe just uh, promo uh, some entry-level resources that would be helpful for somebody wanting to get a handle on Isaiah. Yeah. So, um, I brought one too, and I'm curious whether we brought the same one. Go ahead. All right. You want to do it at the same time? Yeah. Sure. Let's do a reveal. It'll be like a gender reveal. Ready? <laughs> one, two, three. What do you, what do you, what do you got? Oh, we do. Jay, the, I've got the Jay Alec Montier, different covers, but different yeah. Cover. I like my cover better. <laughs> we spent way too much time in the same context growing up. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, yeah. so go ahead. You tell about That's it. A, this is, I mean, this is not, a, Isaiah is 66 chapters that. long. So yeah. if you're going to get commentary on Isaiah, even a, an entry level commentary, it's going to be fairly sizable, but yeah. this one doesn't require you to be able to read Hebrew. And this is a really, really good entry level uh, get your mind wrapped around things. So that's one. But, I so people who are listening on podcast, because actually more people listen on podcast than than see the, the video. So they they didn't see that. So tell them what it was. Uh, this is the the title is the prophecy of Isaiah, an introduction and commentary by J. Alec Moitier, M O T Y E R Moitier, and that's one really good one. The other one I grabbed off my shelf. Um, is actually uh, just a collection of sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones just mm. on Isaiah 40 called The All-Sufficient God. Mm. And this was just uh -huh. a really helpful read when yeah, I was working podcast, through actually more Isaiah 40 myself. All right, now hold that up because I may, I may want to get that. All right, see that? get it without glare. All right, okay. All right, good. I don't have that. Very good. Well, thank you, brother. Sticking uh, with the Old Testament here, um, there was, Mark, you weren't lying. Last, last week you introduced the book of Numbers and you, you kind of tried to convince all our listeners that it was going to be worth their time uh, reading the book of Numbers. Because of course, when you start Numbers, you have to wade through a couple chapters of genealogy that, that can be tough uh, for the first time Bible reader. But if they did that work, boy, were they ever rewarded this past week? Um, that was, you know, pound for pound and verse for verse, maybe the the most interesting six or seven chapters you're going to find in the Old Testament. It just, it seemed that it, every verse had something interesting to say, something eye-opening, something heart-stirring. Um, and uh, there are a number of things I'd love to spend some time on this week. And uh, some of it, you know, despite that numbers at times can feel very foreign, boy, there was some really relevant uh, material in, in numbers this past week. I'm thinking of numbers nine, first off. Uh, there's that really interesting story about a couple of men who were eager to celebrate Passover, but uh, because they'd come into contact with a dead body, they were on quarantine. So uh, they went to Moses and uh, they said, listen, are we going to have to miss out on Passover? Passover is super important. It only comes around, you know, once a year. And, and um, it's, it's in essence, it's the covenant meal of the Old Testament. And we would hate to miss out on that because we're in quarantine. What should we do? And Moses went to the Lord, and the Lord came back and said they could defer. 
uh, they can defer and, and do it a month later, but they mustn't alter it in any way. And so he, he says, yeah, you can defer. And then he actually repeats the regulations for celebrating Passover. I just thought it was fascinating. And, and I'm wondering if I'm out on a limb here, but, but as we think about, because all churches right now are wrestling with the issue of what do we do with communion? Uh, here we are in this COVID-19 thing. Uh, we can't get together. Uh, we, we missed communion last month. Here it is looking like we're going to miss it again this month, maybe next month. And then who knows, even as churches start to gather again, uh, you know, we're hearing that um, there's, there still might be certain restrictions on, on certain activities that could lead to transmission. So churches are wrestling with what do we do with communion? Do we change it uh, or, or do we just defer it? And I'm wondering, did, did Numbers 9 give us any principles to work with or am I over uh, extrapolating and over applying? I'd love to hear from the panel on that. Well, I, I'm preaching through numbers, so I not to hog all the time between you and me, Paul, but I'll start in here real quick because sure. I actually preached Numbers 9 uh, probably about a month before COVID-19 hit us. Hmm. And it's interesting because when I preached this text, I preached on communion. Um, huh. I didn't preach on well, deferring. Yeah. It's an obvious connection, yeah. Right, but I, I did preach. It's very interesting because not only does the Lord, these people want to observe, but they're in a state of uncleanness, and so they're not able to, and talked about how there are times when we may have to stand down from communion because we know we're not right with the Lord. But there's also a clause in there that says if you, uh, if you fail to observe the Passover, you're cut off from the people. Right. Um, that, that part of that passage too, and, and just sort of challenge the people that sometimes it seems to me, at least in my church, that uh, communion Sundays are the worst attended because people know it's going to be extra long and there's going to be all this introspection. And uh, is that right? Um, but I would say this, I, I, I think there's principles there. I would not at the end of it want to make the question of whether or not a church practices communion um, or doesn't practice communion at this time, as far as I know, there's some churches are, you and I are in the same place, Paul, we're not practicing communion. I know there are some churches that are practicing communion uh, through Zoom or through some yeah. sort of remote sort of thing. Um, I don't think I would want to make this a first level issue on, on, on whether or not you, you, it's right or wrong to do that. No, I, no, I would agree. I'd love to hear from the rest of you, though, how you're landing and, and what relevance you think this passage has to the discussion. Yeah, you know, I've been reading 1 Corinthians 11 and 32, and I think that has some bearing here as well. 1 Corinthians 11, 32 says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, right. um, wait for one another. And that word there in Greek, sunerkomai, never means come together in anything other than a physical gathering now i know it would be so it doesn't apply to zoom he didn't have zoom in mind when he said that. <laughs> right. so it is a bit it is a bit anachronistic i, I understand no, but but i think yeah, that's yeah. yeah i know and that's that's really the norm i think that yeah. we see here uh, in the scriptures is that uh when we can physically gather and do it we're doing it in the way that god is uh, commanding us to the lord does not promise to bring his special presence in an online environment and so I think that's something we need to um, we need to remember. Now, is that a first tier issue? No, I don't, I don't think so. But I think uh, I think as a matter of you know obeying the commands of God um, in this text, I think it, its most obvious application would be a physical gathering. 
Yeah, no, I, I would agree. Any, anyone else want to jump in on that? It's a tricky, tricky issue. I, I, I had a pastor contact me, uh, you know, and sort of give the other side of it that, you know, it's com it's a comfort to people. It's it's a part of people's, you know, um, relationship with God. It's part of it, it's a reminder to self-evaluate and self-examine. So I, I understand uh, why folks are might be leaning the other way. Anybody want to make the other side of the argument or just continue on with uh, with where it sounds like we've landed? I, will, I won't make the other side of the argument because I'm probably with where you guys are at. But I do think what's um, interesting in the Numbers 9 passage, at least, is that even though God doesn't, God demands that they not change anything, he does show grace in that yeah. he allows them to participate in it at a different time. Yeah. Which I thought was, you just see the compassion of God. Like God could have just been like, no, they're unclean. They're missing Passover. Right. Um, but he doesn't do that. He, he knows they desire to participate. And so he, he allows them to delay before yeah. they participate. Hmm. Uh, that being said, I don't think, um, I don't think it's wise to be taking the Lord's supper at this time. Um, partly due to what Jesse was saying. I also just think that, what the cup and the bread represent. It's one bread, one cup. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of a bunch of people in their homes grabbing grape juice or wine from their fridge and their own bread, it doesn't capture what the Lord's Supper is. It just doesn't because it's one bread and one cup. Um, and so even though I agree it's not a, a first tier issue, I, I, would, I would ask the question, why is it so important that we do this over Zoom um, and in a sense, are we in the end actually belittling the Lord's Supper, even though we seem to say it's so important? What, you know, one question I have, Paul, is, is I wonder what church traditions, how they would respond to this. So yeah. churches that tend to, traditions that tend to have more of a higher view of the Lord's Supper, I wonder if they would be actually far more intense about not gathering compared to churches that merely see it as a symbol. Yeah. So earlier on in this, well, I, I guess when communion was kind of coming up for most of us a month ago, um, I facilitated a, an article at, at TGC where I tried to get pastors from different traditions. And so we had Anglican, uh, we had Independent Reformed, uh, we're a Baptist church, and then we had uh, Dutch Reformed. And I was surprised because I kind of thought it would end up as one of those four views, you know, articles, uh, but instead everybody was on the same page. But those who were most I don't know, vehemence, not the right word, but definitely settled on the issue were uh, the Anglican and uh, Reformed. And, and I would argue, you know, because TGC is what it is, we didn't go all the way down the ecumenical tree, uh, down to the, to the lower evangelicals. But those that I've, friends of mine who are, I guess what you call lower church traditions, uh, a, a higher percentage of, say, independent evangelical Pentecostal type uh, churches are, are doing it. Uh, so you're probably right, Peter, that as you go up kind of the ecclesiastical tree, uh, there's a, a greater reticence. Yeah, Miranda. I just have a question. So when we all kind of, it seems like there's an agreement here yeah. that we shouldn't do it, but is there a point where you go, if this were to linger and we were to have to do church online for the greater part of 2020, let's pretend, yeah. Okay. Would you say at what point would you say this is the barrier of we should start doing communion over Zoom? Do you have a threshold of like, okay, this is actually, we are going against the scriptures at this point in the sense of the passages that we've already mentioned. And it's more 
harmful rather than protecting this sacred um, ordinance. I'm not sure that I would answer that with respect to communion specifically, but I would okay. say I do think there's a conversation to have um, about at what point do we have to say no to the government with respect mm -hmm. to gathering? Because I actually think gathering is essential. Like right now, I think we can survive. I think there's an argument to be made for a temporary cessation of gathering in the interest of public health, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're all doing our part here to, to flatten the curve and all that. Um, however, at, at some point, I don't, I don't know what that point is, but at some point, churches are gonna have conversations and saying, listen, um, our definition of what is essential is different than the government's. Our definition of acceptable risk is different than the government's. And we're gonna have to do what we have to do at some point. Uh, so I think that conversation will happen with respect to the principle of gathering per se. I'm not sure that I would um, have that conversation about communion in isolation from the gathering issue. I mean, um, it, it, it's conceivable that we might say, well, let's gather, but let's defer communion because that's a high transmission issue. Let's mm -hmm. defer that for a little while. Because um, I, you know, I, I, I see in this passage that God is uh, completely willing to accept deferral, but relatively inflexible with respect to methodology. Mm -hmm. And so I just think, I, I think perhaps on the communion issue, uh, that's something that we should pay attention to, that I'd rather defer than start changing what communion is. I mean, once we're doing cheesies and Pepsi at, at home on the couch with our, with our friends, I, that's not communion, in, in, my, in my opinion. I think that's a bridge too far with respect to adaptation. And, and the Lord has expressed a willingness to accommodate deferral. So why would we go there? Is sort of where where I'm at on that. We could oh, but, sorry, go ahead, Mike. For, for for a long time, but I, I mean, what you're talking about uh, is something theologians call the regulative principle. Yeah. And if you, if for people that were at T4G, they sent out a nifty little book by Ligon Duncan that actually talks about the regulative principle, which is a good read. Um, the issue that you that for intelligent conversation with a with other pastors and other churches, you know, we don't use a single cup. I don't know if you guys use a single cup, but we went to multiple little cups and even recently have decided at least for the time being that we will probably cut up the bread rather than serving a full loaf, you know, and I, I don't think that violates regulative principle. I do right. believe in the regulative principle, but I think that some of these things, you know, there, there is a little bit of a weighing out of, um, you know, what, what can we do or what ought we to do? So I think we should be careful not to be dogmatic yeah. all the way across on it. So. No, I, I would agree. I, whether you use little cups or one big cup, I think there's room for flexibility, whether you use this type of bread or that type of bread. However, like I said, the, the cheesies and pop on the couch at home with, with just your fam, friends and family, that, that seems to me like at some point we've, we've adapted beyond the except the flexible boundaries of the regulative principle, I would say. Yeah. Crystal, did you want to jump in on that? Uh, no, I, I think you guys have answered that one really well. Well, and, and uh, Clint, I know that your church was represented in that initial article. So I've, I've read some of what you guys are doing, and it seems uh, very, very much in line with sort of where the conversation has gone here. Obviously, it's a complicated issue. Just yeah. interesting to note. You know, I, I was saying this um, with respect to Leviticus, I guess, two weeks ago when we were talking. I, 
it is amazing how uh, books that we are probably in the dark inclined, you know, when no one's looking inclined to think are, are quite irrelevant or, or, you know, some people might say that all of a sudden in the last month and a half, boy, don't they just seem to be extraordinarily timely and filled with useful principles that we're applying to our present day situation. It's just a reminder that whatever problem you think you see in the word of God, you know, wait a month because uh, you might discover the problem is in you. Uh, well, again, sticking with numbers, uh, another interesting conversation that came up uh, this week in numbers, kind of two conversations intertwined in numbers 11. Numbers 11 is a fascinating story. It is, it's two narratives intertwined. There is the grumbling of the people that results in God sending the quail and then they choke on the quail. And uh, that in itself is a marvelous story, right? Be careful what you wish for. And uh, you know, what happens when God gives us what we crave? There's a great conversation there. Um, so there's this sort of grumbling narrative, but then there, there's the marvelous accommodation of God, which, which has his blessing, which is the diversification of the, the leadership structure. Uh, so I kind of want to hit on both of those, but Miranda, you, you sent me an email because you were uh, really intrigued with the grumbling narrative. And so what did you see there that you, that you wanted to unpack with the group? Yeah, first, I just to get, I guess, to begin is just that as I was reading it, I think I, it fell... Um, numbers 11 or um, maybe even before because there's so many accounts of grumbling and complaining yeah, yeah. and rebellion. Yeah. Um, it fell on Sunday and I just noticed the same kind of attitude just mm -hmm. in full transparency of just being like a whiner you know and just yeah. seeing this kind of attitude of complaint and rebellion. Mm -hmm. So then as like as you read, sometimes you think, oh, that's them. I'm so, you know, I'm so much different than they are. Sometimes in our pride, we think that. And then if we're really self-reflecting, we see, no, actually, I'm very much the same. So then as I was looking into that, I was very humbled and repented. And then I just noticed, okay, there seems to be lots of different complaints throughout the narrative and numbers, numbers 11, kind of the, the idea of no meat. And then I, I labeled it no meat, take me back to Egypt, which right. comes up a lot, like not the no meat, but just pretty much like complaining about being in the wilderness mm -hmm. and wanting to be taken back to Egypt. And then um, complaint number two with uh, the rising up of Miriam and Aaron and, uh, you know, why Moses, why not me? And this kind of disgruntled spirit against leadership. Mm -hmm. And then whenever the spies go out, because we're reading through all of this this week, and just this attitude of disbelief about receiving the promised land and God's faithfulness in that. And then, of course, Korah's rebellion. So it starts, of course, in 11, but then it like comes again in um, 12 and 14 and 16. So then I just kind of started thinking, like, why is grumbling and complaining a sin? What about that is a sin or sinful? And um, ultimately, I just, in my reflection, I just found that complaining represents specifically in numbers, their unbelief and their ultimate rejection of God. They reject yeah. both Moses and the Lord and that it overflows. You know, we see in Matthew and Luke and um, for out of the abundance of the heart, um, of the mouth, the heart speaks or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah. And so that is really representing their unbelief in that. And even kind of tying in Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and how they really are worshiping, especially in Numbers 11, that what they, 
they talk about the cucumbers and the spices and the meat and Egypt and kind of longing back there. And I, I guess as I reflected more of, I saw in each of those narratives, this cycle, which was um, a complaint and then this recognition of the complaint either by God or by Moses and, or by both. And then they are confronted by Moses often and then they have this time to respond. The complainer, uh, either as an individual or as a congregation, can respond to that. And depending on their response, they either receive like the wrath of God or they are restored. So like Miriam gets the consequence, which is leprosy, but she's restored and then she's brought back into the community, um, which is restoration. So as I'm like watching this cycle, we also come into Psalm 51 of David and you know his perfect well not perfect but this beautiful representation of repentance through Psalm 51 and his the his response when he's confronted with his sin so anyway it was more of this like thinking through like grumbling complaining and where we are in our circumstances and how we respond to that and um kind of even seeing myself in in different points in the story. Hmm. Well, sense. and of course, that's what these stories are for, right? Like we're supposed to read these stories because we are Israel. Israel is mm -hmm. humanity, right? So, God, and God's written a testimony in their story. So yeah, we're, we're supposed to read these stories and learn about who God is, who we are, and why we need salvation in Christ. So that's the correct use of the story. Anyone else want to jump in on this grumbling narrative? I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, I was kind of struck with it too, Miranda. And, you know, I could also relate in the sense that, you know, the Israelites were how difficult it would be for them to be wandering in the wilderness, you know, and not even the glory cloud, you know, they'd have to wake up every morning and see, oh, is, is it moving? Do we have to pack up and go or, oh, we get to And stay. how frustrating that must be for people who like three days notice for anything. <laughs> yeah, they can't plan, they can't, you know, but then what I realized too is that you know, they're overlooking the fact that out of all the places in the world where God's presence, special presence could be, mm -hmm. he was with them there, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that too, just with us in light of the pandemic, you know, we can kind of relate with, oh, we have to wait and see this news update to know when we can do what we can do. Mm -hmm. And it's so frustrating, but you know, if we are believers, the fact is that God's special presence dwells with the church, you know, he dwells with us. Um, you know, and in, in Jesus, we have every spiritual resource in the heavenly places, you know, and I think part of what's so sinful about complaining is that it's saying something about God's moral character, that he's not good, that he should have done better for me, or he hasn't done enough, or he's done me wrong in some way. Um, you know, and I think when I was looking at that passage, I just realized they had everything. They had God's special presence, you know, and so do we. And I think, um, yeah, it's just, it's a good red flag if we, if we kind of have that complaining spirit to say, well, like, what are we saying about God, you know, when we're complaining against him? And I also just want to say that Numbers 11 was probably the favorite passage in our family. We read it with our kids and they just delighted in the fact that God said um, to Moses, tell the people that I will give them so much meat, it will come out of their, <laughs> out of their nostrils. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got boys, right? So they love that. <laughs> You have to read it with like a nine-year-old, 11-year-old, and 12-year-old boy to fully appreciate that. Crystal, every time I read that story, I think of, of this story that I heard, and I don't, I don't remember if it was told as a parable or if it actually happened, of the, of the woman who caught her daughter smoking, 
And she said, oh, you like cigarettes? And so she locked her in the outhouse with a pack of cigarettes and said you couldn't come out until you'd smoked every cigarette in the pack. And then she came out, you know, green and vomiting and vowed never to touch them again. I mean, there's a sense in which God comes off as a marvelous, stern, but marvelous and wise parent in these stories. Uh, he, he gives us what we want until we realize we should have just been happy with what he gave us in the first place. Yeah, Paul, building off of uh, what Crystal was saying, um, I think what startles me in the, these passages about grumbling is just how strong God's reaction is to it. Yeah. Um, I don't think we as modern day Christians tend to think of grumbling as that evil in the eyes of God. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I like to use this image when it comes to grumbling. Grumbling is the tip of the iceberg. Right. Just below the surface is discontentment, right? Because grumbling is just a result of discontentment in circumstances, but ultimately in God. But then even further down the iceberg, it's pride, right? Because basically when we grumble, we're saying, God, we deserve better That's than right. what you've actually given us. And I, you know, we see the unbelief as, as, a, um, as, as the scripture shows, but I think what, what startles me the most is um, looking at this passage and thinking about the amount of people I know who have walked away from the Lord primarily due to discontentment. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're angry at God for their circumstance. They complain and grumble and they're no longer living for him because of it. So I think uh, these passages are just major warnings for us to realize mm -hmm. that grumbling isn't just a, another small sin. It's, it's one of those things that God sees as, as deeply evil and deeply offensive to his character. And as Krista said, his moral, his moral being, right? So, yeah, yeah just to add to that in? too. Sorry. One little last thought yeah. is just how it correlates really with what Peter's saying too, of like self-examination where you have to, and I think in Hebrews, we'll get to this, but there's this sense of look at your life, look at your heart, look at the fruit of your, of your life and the behavior and, um, and examine yourself and exa examine what you're doing. And if that's really producing the kind of, but ultimately if as a believer, is it producing the fruit of the spirit or is it not, is it really producing thorns and thistles as, as we see in Hebrews six? Anyway. Yeah, Jesse. Yeah, and to jump in there and just to agree with you all, I, I think this is great. Uh, uh, you know, the cardinal sin of the book of John is what? It's unbelief. And what, what do we see in John 6 in Jesus' bread of life discourse? We see unbelief. We see people coming to him, to coming to Jesus to, to feed on bread, where really they need to believe on him. They need to feed on his flesh and blood. Now, Jesus uses language there that's evocative. It sounds like cannibalism to them, so it's offensive to them. But what they really need to do is trust in the bread of life. And we actually find that we can't do that. And even the disciples don't properly trust and even really know that Jesus is the Messiah, really probably until Peter right at the end of, end of, this, end of the book there. But after Pentecost, this amazing things happens. We, we have the Holy Spirit come. We get the uh, new heart and the new mind that was anticipated in, uh, in Jeremiah right? In, in Ezekiel. And we finally get this unbelieving, discontented heart removed, and it's replaced mm -hmm. with a heart of flesh. And so we actually see in this new covenant, um, the remedy to the problem of the entire Old Testament is that we, we, had, we had hearts that were desperately wicked, uh, who can know it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think the whole shape of that story is kind of asking us the question, uh, can you be happy if all you have is God 
and bread and water, right? Because that's that's the story. They they're gonna they're gonna wander around the desert. They've got God, which you know it should should be enough, and they've got bread and water. But but where's the meat, right? That and that question reveals a fundamental dissatisfaction with God that that is, in essence, taken as unbelief. Or and it's not that they didn't believe that He existed; they knew that He existed, but it's unfaith. Faith at the end of the day must, our, our definition of faith has to involve loving God, desiring God, trusting in God, and being content with God, right? The story makes it clear that's what God is after. Um, and, and, you know, they failed. He tested them at Meribah, right? And, and they, they failed. There's a, so right inside that story, or interwoven with that story, there's another equally fascinating story. Uh, Moses is... Uh, just feeling the strain of leading this people who are slow to come to faith that are always grumbling and complaining. So he goes to God and God says, okay, uh, gather up 70 elders and uh, I'll take some of the spirit that's on you and, and put it on them and, and we'll broaden out the, the leadership cadre for Israel. Now, this seems like a different story uh, than the establishment of the judiciary in Exodus um, 18. There, the focus seems to be on uh, the legal process, right? Uh, the Applying the law of God to boundary markers and all these kinds of other things. Um, this has seems to have to do more with shepherding. So this is kind of the pastoral function. The pastoral function is overwhelming. And one of the ways we, th one of the reasons we recognize this is different than the story in Exodus 18 is because in Exodus 18, uh, it appears that Moses bypassed the tribal structure. So he doesn't choose tribal elders. It's an independent judiciary. But here he's supposed to take elders. Um, so this is within the tribal structure. He's supposed to identify elders, and, and they receive the Spirit. And so he's supposed to gather up 70. I don't know why 70. Um, but, but, and so two are left behind because uh, 12 doesn't go into 70 evenly. It leaves a remainder of two. But everybody starts prophesying. The, the Spirit falls on this group, and everybody starts prophesying. But the text says specifically uh, in verse 25 that they did not continue doing it. So there was this outburst of spontaneous prophecy that marked these shepherds as having been anointed for this particular task. But, but then it ended. And then uh, Joshua is a little bit freaked out by it. Uh, he, he's nervous that if everybody becomes a prophet in Israel, then Moses' unique authority will be diminished. So he goes to Moses, he tells him about it, verse 29, and Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. All right, so as a Bible reader, you know, my spidey senses are tingling. It, it feels like this has got to be a typological passage. This, this has got to be starting a storyline uh, that, that's going to end uh, in, in Acts 2. Uh, in Acts 2, we see another broadening out of the leadership cadre. It's, it's not just Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the cornerstone uh, of the church, but, um, you know, as the Bible says, the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. So we've got this, this further broadening out of the cadre of, of leadership, Old Testament prophets, but now we've got apostles. There's an outpouring of the Spirit on them that results in a unique manifestation of the Spirit in, in prophetic speech that does not appear to be repeated. The gift of tongues uh, that's associated with, with Pentecost seem, seems to be different than the one that we see in, in 1 Corinthians. In Acts 2, people are hearing the gospel preached in their own languages. 
which is a seems different. It, it, it sounds as though the apostles came out and they were preaching the gospel and they thought they were preaching in either Greek or Aramaic, but everybody heard it in their own language. People from Cappadocia, Persians, Medes, everybody was hearing it in their own language. That seems to be different than what we see in 1 Corinthians, where that's the tongues of angels or uh, speech that's unintelligible until somebody with the gift of interpretation provides the interpretation. So we've got this unique event that marks out an authorized cadre of leaders. So my question is this, am I, am I reading uh, too much into this? Are you guys seeing the connection between these passages? What are the implications for us as believers today? Throw it open to the panel. Did you find this as interesting as I found it? Yes. Uh, before you even sent us that we were going to look at this passage, I had actually written in my, my margin in the Bible, foreshadowing new covenant hope. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's really clear mm -hmm. that that there's this little foreshadow of Moses' longing for the people of God to have the spirit of God, yeah. which we know is ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant. So I, I definitely think there's connections there for sure. Well, and and then and Peter seems to think so too. Not you, Peter, but uh, you know, the Peter in the Bible. You know, when he gives his speech interpreting this phenomenon, he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So there does seem to be a sense in which, while the apostles are being marked off as unique, there is a, a generalizing, a democratizing, if we can use that expression, of the spirit. And there is, a, there is a sense now in which all true New Covenant believers filled with the Holy Spirit are in some sense prophets now in fulfillment of that prayer of Moses. Is that a right reading? Yeah, I think so. And way back in Exodus at Sinai, um, I mean, the, the Lord's, the covenant to Moses begins by God saying, I, I'm going to make you a, a holy nation and a, 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 a nation of priests and you're going to have unique access to me. Um, and uh, uh, that isn't really fully realized under the Mosaic Covenant. That that awaits. And I think that's the anticipation that works its way through the prophets and and uh, kind of lights the fuse for what finally comes true uh, with Pentecost. Hmm. Just to add to that, I 100% I agree. I think uh, our, our Peter here on Zoom, not the Apostle Peter, uh, said something great last week that typology can be likened unto sort of a snowball, that there is, uh, it begins small in the Old Testament. You might see it picking up a little bit, and then it, you get you get the massive snowball in the New Testament. You get the reality, not just the shadow. And I think we can grow in our confidence that there's a true antitype in Acts 2, if we can see some sort of snowballing going on in the Old Testament itself uh, without looking to the New Testament. So what do we see in the New, in the Old Testament? We see Joel 2, right? Which is actually quoted in Acts yeah. 2. And yeah. Joel, 2, Joel 2 seems to be some, some sort of snowball, some sort of escalation that's going on here, an expectation that there is going to be a democratization. There's going to be a, um, uh, a spreading of the of the spirit, uh, a pouring out upon uh, men and women, young and old, and uh, and uh, Peter interprets that passage as what's going on in Acts, and so I, I think I think there's a lot of merit to considering Acts two as antitypical to uh, Numbers. Well, so to to further to twist this one more way and and add a layer of complexity and in and just curiosity 
I, I find it interesting that in the very next chapter, in Numbers 12, uh, that's the chapter, Miranda, you were, you were referring to, where uh, for whatever reason, Miriam and Aaron are, are feeling that, you know, Moses has too much authority, that, that he, he's leading in, in a way that they, they aren't quite sure they agree with. They think that it should really be more of a plurality with the three of them at the top of this, uh, you know, leadership pile. So they go to Moses and they're upset. Moses says, well, you know, we'll take it to the Lord and see what he says. And the Lord comes down and he's very unhappy with this notion that they, they would uh, challenge Moses' unique authority. And uh, he, he says this, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So Miriam and Aaron had said, you know, we're prophets too. Uh, so why, why does Moses seem to have this extra level of authority? And, and God says, well, because there is an extra level of authority. Uh, there's a form of prophecy that is basically darkness and riddle, uh, right? There's something there, but you have to be careful how you interpret it, etc. But then there's an inscripturated prophet, if we could use that term. There is a there is an authoritative Bible-speaking mouth-to-mouth prophet um, that has a, a level of authority within the covenant community that must not be challenged, uh, that is unrivaled in essence. Um, and, and you're seeing that in the Old Testament. And then I think you're seeing something, I, I think you're seeing something parallel in the New Testament. You're seeing the democratizing of the spirit, right? So uh, Peter talks about that on Pentecost. So yep, uh, old men, young men, rich people, old, everybody's got it now. If you're truly a Christian filled with the Spirit, you are in some sense a prophet. But then you have the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking as an apostle, saying, if you don't recognize my authority, you don't get to speak in church. And, and so there's this, again, there's this kind of inscripturated authority that provides boundaries and parameters for the exercise of, you know, for lack of a better term, lower level generalized prophecy, which may be darkness and riddle. Uh, is, that a, is that a fair comparison, what we're seeing in, in Numbers 12 with what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 14? I think there's some legitimacy there. I, I also, when I, when I read the New Testament, it's very clear, like, you know, Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that the church is founded upon the apostles and the prophets. Right. Um, and that there were lots of people in the New Testament who prophesied, but they weren't considered one of those prophets. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. So you read through Acts, I, I forget uh, his name, but his three daughters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Philip. They prophesied. Um, and Agabus. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they are one of those prophets that, that the church was founded upon. So it, it seems like with the outpouring of the Spirit, um, the gift of prophecy, so to speak, can be given to a multitude of people, but that doesn't make them a prophet like that of the Old Testament, or even those who were founded, uh, where the church was founded upon in the New Testament. Well, and a lot of scholars will say that's why the word apostle was introduced in the, into the mm -hmm. Christian lexicon. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the word apostle basically means New Testament inscripturated prophet, you know, in, in uh, comparable to, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Is that, is that a fair understanding? Is that how you guys are understanding the word uh, apostle, that it is in essence an adjective for a certain type of prophet with extraordinary foundational level authority in the church. Yeah. The apostle, like with a capital A, Yeah. sometimes there's a distinction between that type of post, like the office versus 
and there's distinction there and I'm not necessarily wanting to get into that. I have a question though. Sure. Um, this unique description of Moses um, that God gives to Miriam and Aaron, is that given to anyone else? I, I don't mouth to mouth. Yeah. That whole description of that unique relationship that Moses had. Well, and we know like the Mosaic covenant, the, the beauty of that, the, the importance of that, that maybe it wasn't necessary in other, like other covenants or other relationships that God well, had. With Moses is certainly treated unique in, in the old Testament. And that's why, you know, they, they talk about, we're waiting for a prophet like Moses, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a like sense that. in which you don't get a prophet like Moses in the Bible until you get Jesus. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's so unique. And he's set apart. And, you know, I mean, I think it's in numbers as well, maybe earlier, where it describes Moses as being the most humble man on earth. And yeah. of course, yeah, how people cool. say, well, if, if he wrote the Pentateuch, how can he say that about himself? And of course, like, most likely someone else wrote that about him. But um, you see, I mean, and that is a striking thing about him in the narrative as well, just falling on his face, such humility. And it's so and yet such opposition, so much opposition from the people and his own family. And yeah, well, the more authority you have, I would imagine the more resentment you will attract. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, I think we might consider that prophecy, even in the old Testament is not monolithic. It's no, not, it's that's not, exactly right. The school school prophets, prophets, right? right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like we're talking like school, the prophets, right. Dancing around. Saul is among the prophets. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so when we go to the New Testament, uh, we need to be careful that we're not carrying erroneous Old Testament baggage, thinking that we should expect the exact same thing in the New Testament, yeah. being one sort of prophecy. So when you see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, yeah. Paul desires that we eagerly, mm -hmm. we eagerly desire to prophesy. That yeah. almost sounds like Moses, doesn't it? And like that he desires, he desires that they would prophesy. Yeah. Paul and Moses are both like, Hey, more prophecy. This would be great. But what kind of prophecy was Moses looking for? He was looking for that lower level prophecy. Right. I, I wonder if there's an argument there for lower level prophecy in first Corinthians 14. Which begs, sorry. Define, oh, sorry, Miranda. Go ahead, Crystal. I was just curious how you guys would define this lower level prophecy, because yeah. I see how, you know, we all have the same spirit that the prophets had. Um, but like, how do we have this role or gift of prophecy? How, do, how does this all look today then in your mind as you're describing this lower level prophecy? That's a great question. And, and I, I, I would spend some time in Numbers uh, you know, 12, 11 and 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 in, in order to define that. I would say there, there are banks, authoritative banks and parameters that are provided by inscripturated prophets. So in the Old Testament, we're talking about Moses. God, God says, you're prophets, but don't, don't confront Moses. Don't, don't think that, that you can cross lines that, that he, I speak to him face to face, word for word. So there's a different level of authority. So whatever you're doing, better operate within those parameters. Then the Apostle Paul says the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm, I'm laying down authoritative guidelines for the church. I'm laying down an authoritative foundation. So whatever you're doing with your you know, let's call it de democratized understanding of prophecy that all believers have the spirit and can can prophesy in some sense in that we speak the word of God with the help of the spirit of God to one another. Whatever it is you're doing there had better happen within these boundaries and within these these parameters. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's what I would understand. I think to be perfectly honest with you, I think this is a classic example of a difficult conversation to have because of our cultural moment. Mm 
We're talking about prophecy on the other side of the charismatic uh, revival of the 80s and 90s, which kind of landed in the ditch. And now as a result, we're trying very hard to distance ourselves from that embarrassment. And we're even letting go of words that are legitimate. Um, I, I, do, I think if you get behind the, the embarrassment of that movement, you find no embarrassment about those terms. John Bunyan, the, you know, he whom there is no more Baptist or Reformed than, uh, you read his biography and he believes in prophecy. He believes that the Spirit is guiding him and speak, not in an inscripturated sense, but, but in a real sense. Yeah. I think a lot of uh, the Puritans use the word guidance, do they not? Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people are very comfortable as long as you talk about guidance because of the uh, cultural connotations uh, post uh, yeah. charismania. Yeah, and, and that's probably what wise people do. Wise people just substitute the language while there's the stigma in the air. Um, but, you know, I'm a probably a contrarian. I feel if it's in the Bible, I want to use the Bible's language. I don't want to react to your weird embarrassment about something that happened. I just want to deal with the terms. That are in the Bible. Just to be clear, Paul, you don't have a Holy Spirit machine gun under your desk. I don't even know what that means, but I'm excited. That's an <laughs> airport vineyard kind of thing that came out. In oh, the yeah. No, no. Sorry, brother. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> ignorant of that. Okay. Yeah. Well, listen, let's move on to uh, one more really interesting thing from, from the book of Numbers. That wasn't all we read this week, but there was just so much there. Um, I'll skip over the story of the man who was stoned on the, stab, on the Sabbath, Mark. You, you kind of covered that a little bit. But then there's this very interesting, and it actually dovetails very nicely into what we were just talking about. Um, there's this interesting story where God says, I want you to put some visible reminders on your clothing that you're going to see, and it's going to remind you all the time that the word of God has to be primary. It has to be your foundational authority. And, he, and, the, and the reason he, he gives is absolutely fascinating. He says, and this is in verse 39 of Numbers 15, uh, make a tassel there for you to look at. So it's a visible reminder. Look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So he literally says to them, you need to staple some stuff to your clothes, reminding you to pay more attention to the word of God than you do to your own uh, you know, ridiculous opinions and feelings. And I just find like that that is fascinating to me that First of all, God knows us so well. He knows that we make idols and ultimate authorities of our own thoughts and inclinations, our own feelings. It's almost like Numbers 15 was written with the 21st century in mind. Uh, you know, we're constantly talking about how our generation is characterized by this uh, incessant inclination to absolutize all of our feelings. We, you know, we basically say, if I feel this way, it must be right for me. If, if, I, if I want this, it must be God's will for my life. I feel like we're the first generation who has ever made the jump from, I feel this, to it must be God's will. Because everything I read in the Bible tells me that most of my feelings are probably not God's will. But now I read this, and I think, apparently, people have been like this forever. And so I just find that fascinating. And it's, we need to have visible reminders guiding us back to the Word of God and away from our own feelings and inclinations. Uh, I, I was impacted by that. I'm interested to hear how it impacted you. Mm -hmm. I, you know, Paul, you kind of think you hit it right on the doorknob. Um, the, the unforgivable sin in our culture is to go against your heart. Yeah. 
Follow your heart. That's what they sing at every kindergarten yeah. graduation. It's Deny almost what... like God has not been to a kindergarten graduation. <laughs> yeah. Deny what you feel. Uh, don't don't follow your heart. That is the most sinful thing you could say um, in our culture because it's it's so offensive to to our secular mind. Mm. Um, you know, it it's interesting. In one sense, you could say there is no such thing as moral relativism. Um, I mean, there are people who ultimately are, but, but for the most part, most people who say there's no objective morality, all they're really saying is they're going to replace the, you know, Judeo-Christian moral worldview with their own moral worldview right. and subscribe to that and then demand others to subscribe to that. And if they don't, then you're narrow-minded and bigoted. And so that's really at work in our society today. And, and if you were to reduce what that morality is, it is that I'm going to follow my own heart, what, what feels right for me, as long as it doesn't harm anyone. That's, that's really the, the moral compass right. of our day. If it doesn't harm anyone, it's yeah. consensual, we're good. There's, there's, no, there's no true goodness, true beauty, uh, truth in itself, right? So, um, so that's definitely at work in our society right now. Yeah. I just have a yeah, thought. I was thinking um, this principle, I mean, like God gives it as a command here, yeah. but then it seems like through judges, this is lived out in story. What happens when you live and you do what's right in your own heart and when your own eyes, right? And Judges is a horrifying book. And I don't know if we'll be doing this. Um, we'll be doing going deeper online when we go through Judges. But I mean, with let, if we do what's right in our own eyes, it leads to destruction. And yeah. so that, that Judges kind of shows us that in picture form and story form, what I think this is teaching us here in Commandment. Yeah, and you get it in the Psalms too. Psalm eighty-one. Uh, that that's that's the exact theme. Uh, Psalm eighty-one. I think William William Van Gemmeren gives it the title. Oh, that Israel would listen to me. And uh, and you know they kind of recount this whole wilderness journey, and they're like, Hey, remember when you guys thought you'd do it your own? How'd that work out? And then the refrain is, Oh, that you, that you would would listen to me. And and you almost get the sense that Israel, you know, by the time of Asaph, had, had kind of landed on this understanding that what God is looking for is a people who tremble at his word, mm -hmm. who just believe that God's word is good and it can be trusted. And if we just do it, everything will work out fine. And then to get people there, they kind of recount. Remember all the times we didn't trust God? Remember all the time we did it our own way? How'd that work out? And you're right. That's the same argument being made in the book of Judges. And Jesse, you were saying, and that's kind of where, that's the transition point to the New Testament, right? That's the longing that becomes the prophecy of the new covenant, that we're going to get these new hearts, mm -hmm. right? And we're going to be filled with a spirit that's going to incline us in the direction of God. That's, that's what we're waiting for by the time the New Testament or the Old Testament comes to an end. The, the swallow the bag of iron filings and being drawn, you know, yeah. inside. inside You're going to have to unpack that analogy because <laughs> I know what you mean. I think I actually got that from you. I, I, I know. know. That's why I said you're going to have to unpack it because then that, it only makes sense to me. Well, yeah, certainly do not swallow a bag of iron filings. Right. Just to be actual, clear. It's bad for your health. You shouldn't mm -hmm. do that. What is this picture of God is the great magnet and he's yeah. placed inside of you metal that's going to pull you towards him. He's, um, yeah, he's, he's put in an inclination inside of you that you did not have before that will eventually um, overtake your entire life progressively and in degrees. Yeah. yeah, well said. Well, Jesse, while we got you, um, we're going to transition to the New Testament now. 
Mark, you must have enjoyed that. Eh? We just spent three quarters of our program talking about the Old Testament. So that's right up your alley. Uh, but transitioning now to the New Testament, uh, this past week, we read what I would argue is probably the most debated, controversial chapter in the New Testament. Certainly, it would be in any, anyone's list of top three. Uh, we read Hebrews 6. And uh, so, Jesse, I thought you could maybe unpack for us how you're reading Hebrews 6, your interpretation, where you land. And, uh, and then we'll listen and uh, chime in and, and uh, maybe agree, maybe disagree. We'll see, see where you land. All right. I'll do my best to keep it as concise as possible. Uh, I think that the reason why this text is so difficult is because there are actually a number of elements that need to be clarified before you can even start interpreting this text. It can be a bit of a mess just to look at it at first glance. So we have to determine, number one, what is the warning uh, given in Hebrews 6? And then who is the warning addressed to? So let's let's tackle those maybe in reverse order. Now, before you do that, just just in case people aren't aware, like we're all sitting here, we're a bunch of Bible geeks, right? We we eat and breathe this stuff. Maybe the the person listening in doesn't even know what the controversy is. Could could you read Hebrews six four to nine? Have you got it there? Yeah, absolutely. I'll pull it up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, verse four. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Verse 7, for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God, but it, if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Verse 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. And so, so that's the context there. And so um, if I could tackle those questions in reverse order, what, what's the warning and then who's it addressed to? Yeah. Um, I'd say first off, one of the, that's probably one of the biggest questions is who is the warning addressed to? Is this warning addressed to true Christians, or is this addressed to almost Christians, uh, sort of fringe people in the covenant community? Wayne Grudem actually holds that last view. But uh, I do believe alongside other scholars that this text describes a saved person. I think Wayne Grudem tries to argue that tasting of the heavenly gift and partaking in the Holy Spirit is language for people that are almost saved. Mm -hmm. But I don't buy that. Uh, Dr. Schreiner actually helpfully points out that there is no clearer mark in the New Testament that one is a believer than receiving the Holy Spirit. And so I would add to that that uh, the only other time that the word taste is used in Hebrews is Hebrews 2 verse 9, which says that Jesus tasted death. And certainly Jesus fully partook of death. He experienced death in all of its fullness. And unless you're prepared to say that he sipped at death or, or he kind of died, then I would be careful about using the word tasted uh, in that way. And so those who taste the heavenly gift partake in all of its fullness. These are true Christians described here in my, in my perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the second major question is, what is the warning then? What is the warning if it's the true Christians? Well, the warning, I believe, is against apostasy, against falling away. And so this is where the text gets really very difficult. It's easy to see how an almost Christian could fall away from God because they were never saved in the first place. Right. But since this text, in my view, addresses true Christians, 
does this mean that a true Christian can actually fall away? Can they lose their eternal life, if you will? No, I, I don't believe that, that that is the case. This warning is not meant to be commentary on actual Christian experience of falling away. Rather, it is a warning which keeps Christians inside the boat of salvation, inside the Ark of Christ. Uh, the warning is the means by which God will help his people. And we actually see an illustration of that helpfully in Acts chapter 27. When I preached on this back in November, uh, I started my sermon with this story about the Apostle Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27. Uh, Paul got a word from God that not anyone will be lost in the, in the storm that they're facing on the boat. Only the ship will be destroyed. And then after this promise, that not just a couple verses later, a couple uh, soldiers are getting frantic and panicky. They're about to jump ship. And the Apostle Paul warns them. He says, no one uh, will be lost unless these men stay with the ship. Unless them, they stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And so Paul's saying, even though God's promised that you will surely be saved, God always keeps his promises. If you jump ship, then you're shark bait, right? You, you'll not be saved. And so the prophecy came to pass and everyone washed up on the island and was saved. And so just to kind of sum that up, God's powerful warnings are effective to keep us in the boat so that everyone on the boat will be saved at the end of the day. The new covenant guarantees future obedience and, and, and God uses the, the means of warnings to secure the ends of our preservation. Very good. That's a, a great summary of what I would call one of the two very common explanations within the, the conservative evangelical community. So I'll summarize the other two, meaning there's one more you'll find within the conservative evangelical community, and then there's there's one more you'll find probably outside. So uh, you've done a great job with that one. The other one is that um, the, the apostle here is uh, addressing people who are, uh, we might call them inquirers. They are around the edges. They're phobuminoi. You know, they're, they're, God fears, but they're not quite all the way into the community, and they've tasted, they've kind of gurgled, uh, as it were, and they've they've sampled everything, but then they turn away, um, and and they're th those are the ones that he's that he's referring to these these people who are playing uh, hokey pokey, right, one foot in and one foot out, and then then they finally go away, uh, and then there's there's probably a viewpoint that that is maybe the majority viewpoint within some circles but but probably not conservative or reformed evangelical circles but that these are these are christians um but then they they turn away they lose their salvation so those are kind of the three the three viewpoints i'd, I'd love to hear how how the rest of you are are wrestling with this passage uh, and maybe there's a viewpoint that you hold that i haven't uh, communicated i so i got i have more of a question um I wonder how much text like, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, where it talks about the husband being sanctified, the unbelieving husband is yep. sanctified by the... Yeah, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. So it seems that an unbeliever can experience some kind of participation in the covenant community while not being a part of it. Yeah. And, and so I don't know if that would relate to this text in that regard, that, that there are people... Um, who have either grown up in the new covenant community, they're not in the new covenant, but they're, you know, children of Christians or, or whatnot. And they've grown up and they've, they've experienced all of these things. Um, they've, they have tasted, they, they benefited off of the new covenant community, so to speak. But in the end they walk away. And I don't know, I, 
I haven't come to the conclusion on that, but I was just thinking about that in my, my head as both you and uh, Jesse shared the two different views in that regard. Um, Mark, oh, sorry, you, are you, Mark, were you jumping in? But I think you were muted. I was, I was muted, Zoom, yeah. Zoom issues. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, I, 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 like, I like what Jesse's saying. Uh, I know when I've handled this passage in the past, I, the warning is is real and it is intended to be very very pointy, uh, and it is wrong I think for any preacher or pastor to dismiss it out of hand in such a way that it doesn't make people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Because the writer of Hebrews intends for you to take a serious look, and I say to people all the time, I, I'm I think I don't know which position you hold, Paul, but I'm probably closer to the position that would say. Uh, these are people who have come close. This is the the tares among the wheat. This is the uh, the the seed on rocky soil and weedy soil. There's lots of warnings in Scripture of those who look like, behave like, respond like, think like, talk like believers, and in the end, the evidence shows that it just wasn't so. And so, but I'm I'm also a little close to Jesse there where. Uh, God ordains not only the end, but also the means. And so one of the ways that I think the Lord keeps a person from falling away, and not the only way, but one of the ways is that he puts these pointy warnings in, and people like you and I read this and go, man, I don't want to fall away. And so we keep pressing on. He says, you won't fall away. I will keep you. But one of the ways that he keeps you is by giving you these kind of warnings and saying, don't fall away. Yeah, I, I agree, Mark. I, I, I'm an, I think that there's an, a solid argument to be made that he's chosen his words very carefully here, right? Like he, he talks about tasting the heavenly gift, tasting the goodness of God, tasted the powers. Um, these, all these words seem, seem to have this sense of sampling or, or whatever. But, but I, I also recognize the, the function of, of warning. And so I kind of almost look at it as a both and function. And I don't know how it could be anything other than both and because when you look out over your congregation or when you write a letter, you don't know who you're addressing. Mm -hmm. You don't know if the person hearing you or reading you is a true believer who needs a kick in the pants or a, you know, a false believer who's been beating around the bush. You don't know. So you just say what is true. And, and then, you know, there's that old saying, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. That same true word uh, will will buttress the faith of the wavering, and will scare away the you know the wolf in sheep clothing. So, so I, I'm kind of a both ander. Although I I think I think there's a good argument that that you know he anticipates he's got in mind at least the real possibility that there are some samplers in the crowd who who need to you know fish or cut bait. I, I think in my I, I think in my application of my sermon that's where I kind of landed on. Um, those who seem to be the who, who seem to be believers on the outside, you know. Yeah. So if if you think you're a believer, you've made a profession of faith. Maybe you raise your hand. Uh, I can't. Maybe you walk down the aisle, pray with the pastor or something. Maybe yeah. you listen to an altar call. Yeah. Um, you you seem to have entered into the co covenant community. This is a time to take heed that you stand, lest you fall. So I did apply it to those people in that way. Um, but the the only way, the only reason why I couldn't say that the tasters were those who had maybe partially partook was because I actually don't think the question here 
is whether this is a mixed audience or not. I think it almost certainly was a mixed audience. Yeah. I think the question we need to ask is what does this text describe as the audience? What are the hearers described as? In my perspective, and I, I understand if, if we're not in full agreement on this, taste there is always used in Hebrews in a full partaking sense, but I, I completely understand. But I, I think we would come to the same spot in the application. Of this. Well, here, I've got a question from a listener I want to I want to throw mm -hmm. out to you. I've got two questions on this. I'm not surprised it's a controversial passage. The first one, I'll just throw it to the table. Anyone can grab it who, who wants it. So one of the listeners says, you know, this verse has often frightened me because it seems to imply there is no room for repentance, that, that whoever this person is, that whether they were beaten around the bush or, or whatever, uh, they left and now they can't come back. Uh, so uh, what do we say to that person who's worried that, that um, you know, so that, that this, uh, with this note that there's no room for repentance? We tell them to come back and we call them to repentance. And if they repent and come back, then we say, you don't need to worry about that. Yeah. Uh, I, you never, ever, ever, ever give up and say, that person is too far gone, beyond mm -hmm. the reach. You always, always. And the reality is there will be some, and I, we could go a different way on this. There will be some, and I think this passage is really saying that this person has hardened themselves in such a way that they, they cannot repent because they don't want to. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the, the answer to that listener, viewer, whoever that is, is, is come back. And, and if you've got somebody, a child, a, a spouse, a friend who has walked away, continue until they cease to breathe to stay, come back, repent and mm -hmm. see what happens. Yeah. I always say this verse never applies to the person who's asking that question. Cause if you want to come back, the door's mm -hmm. open, right? It's for the, it's those who don't. They don't, that's what he's talking about. Those who don't want to come back, they're inoculated. They, in their minds, they think they tried Christianity and it didn't, it wasn't true or it didn't work. Those people are not coming back. They've been inoculated. They've, right. They, they've had a little bit of the virus and they've learned to overcome it. If you want to come back, trust me, the door is open for you. Those who think they've committed the unforgivable sin and are worried yeah, about same. it, uh, haven't. It's proof positive that they haven't because they're worried. Yeah. About it. Yeah. Hey, I just wanted to add too. Um, I found it helpful in my study Bible. I think it's the, it's the NIV. So I think DA Carson writes the notes on, on, um, the commentary in the bottom. He said this talking about the falling away and specifically these verses, this is not a matter of everyday sin or occasional failings, but a serious fall parallel to earlier in Hebrews three twelve, where it says turning away from the living God or looking ahead chapter 10, 29, arrogantly rejecting the value of Christ's, self, uh, Christ's sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, which is super helpful for what we're talking about today, it's mirroring how the wilderness generation decisively rejected Moses and the Lord. So in one way that I read this morning was almost a commentary of what we read in Numbers about the generation and the people who are Absolutely. rejecting God um, and Moses. And, and this is a warning of don't be like them. If you find yourself mm -hmm. like in those metaphors of the land there of like check, self-examine. But in Hebrews, he's already said um, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart he's, uh, in Hebrews right. 4.7b. So you've got this sense of repent quickly, self-examine, persevere to the end, um, and the Lord will be faithful to keep you. And so it's not us holding tighter to the gospel. It's really God holding on to us, but also confessing and recognizing our sin. 
and our need for him to hold us. Yeah, very good. I, I've got another question here related from a, from another listener. Um, would God blot a believer's name out of the Lamb's Book of Life? So obviously that's a reference to Revelation 3, 5, where, you know, it talks about, um, you, you know, if uh, I, the, it, said, it phrases it negatively there. I will, if you're faithful, I will not blot your name out of the Book of Life. Uh, anyone want to jump in on that? That's, you're cold on that. That's, that's not a passage you knew that we were going to be talking about, but anybody want to jump in on that? It's Interestingly, this is this is totally true in the province of God. I had one of my congregants send me this question by email earlier this week. And so I, I've already answered it this week. So I'll, I'll let one of you have a stab at it unless. So I'll take a quick stab at it. Sure. It's interesting. Uh, Revelations 3, 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Uh, that passage uh it, it says we'll never blot his name out of the book of life but it doesn't say anything there about blotting out um so i don't know i'm, I'm not saying it well i am a little flat-footed but uh that the the reality is that uh this is the promise that your name is is there and will never be blotted out mm -hmm. anyone want to take a stab I'll, I'll read you something from William Hendrickson. This is what I sent to, uh, this is a great commentary, by the way, for those who are watching, More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. So uh, he comments on that. He says, the comparison isn't between those who are in the book and those who will be removed from the book. He says the comparison is between the enduring nature of having your name written in the book above as opposed to the temporal nature of having your citizenship recorded on earth. So he says this, when earthly citizens die, their names are erased from the records. The names of the spiritual conquerors would never be blotted out. Their glorious life would endure. So it, it, the, the comparison is between those who stay in, in the book of life and those who are taken out. The comparison is between how getting your, having your name in the book of life is the greatest thing ever because it doesn't get taken out. Very good. Uh, well, I, I want to just hit hit one more thing in uh, in Hebrews. Uh, I, I hope we have time for this. I'm, I'm watching the clock, but it's an important conversation. In Hebrews 12, there's a conversation about discipline, not self-discipline, but God-discipline, uh, which apparently is normative in the life of the believer. In fact, he says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And he goes on to basically speak about how discipline is painful uh, in the moment, but, but overall produces the fruit of righteousness. So here's the question. What's, what's the difference between discipline and punishment and condemnation? There's kind of a continuum there, and we get stuck on this. I hear Christians say all the time, you know, oh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's like, yes. Um, but there is discipline, um, and, and there is judgment. Uh, so how do we understand these terms? How do we keep them straight? And, and how do we, with that understanding, interpret the things that happen in our own lives? When, when something bad happens in your life, do you spend a moment wondering whether this is the discipline of the Lord, or do you just say, oh, I guess it just, you know, it just happened randomly. Help me understand these things. Yeah, so I think one helpful way to think about it is that punishment is, you know, pain, the penalty for your sin. 
Whereas discipline is, you know, loving correction that's done for your good. And it's meant to reconcile you to God and and bring you closer to him. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so if you are God's child, then, you know, God would never punish you because Jesus has paid for your penalty in full. Um, And I think of Romans 8, 1, where it says there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, like Paul mentioned. Um, But you know, so it's not just that we don't have um, to pay the penalty for our sin, but we also don't even have the status of guilty anymore. Right. Um, you know, and so it's not just like get out of hell free. It's, it's like you don't even have that guilty status. Um, and I think so, you know, when you're trying to discern, am I being punished or am I being disciplined? It's just it's helpful to know what is your relationship to God? Because, you know, if you're an unbeliever, um, I think of Romans 1.18 that says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. You know, it is being revealed. So there's some sense in which it's being revealed now. Um, and maybe you could say at the very least that all these calamities or bad things that happen are a foretaste of the judgment to come. Um, but if you're a believer, you know, Jesus is the propitiation for us. And so he, he has absorbed every last drop of God's wrath for us. There isn't a drop left for us. So I think as a believer, there is sort of a confidence in that way. Um, But, you know, if you're in a bad circumstance and you're a believer, you know, Paul, you're asking, what should I do? Um, And I know discipline seems scary, but I think for us as believers to know that it's actually really good news. Um, You know, it's an opportunity for us to grow in holiness. It's a sign of God's love and his active work in our lives. Um, And I often think of, you know, the analogy in John 15 of Jesus being the true vine and the father being the vine dresser. And we're the branches and the father is pruning back the branches so that they bear more fruit. Um, You know, and I think even in this pandemic, we see the churches are empty week after week and they look like they look bare and sparse, like they're being pruned back. But, you know, I think as believers, then we can still have you know, real reason to hope that there is a season of fruitfulness coming because God is doing a work of um, discipline in our lives. So I think um, if you're in a season of discipline, um, it's, it's maybe helpful to say, okay, well, is there obvious sin that I need to repent of? Um, But after that, you know, we shouldn't stare at our fruit. I don't think we shouldn't say like, you know, what the real thing that we should be doing is actually looking to the vine, looking to Christ, and he's the one that produces fruit in us. Um, so what, what would I do? I would just, you know, get back to Christ, focus on him in a, in a new and um, refocused way and, and trust that the Lord is doing a good and deep work in you, even if you look really sparse in the time. That's a good word. And I, I think it, it makes a big difference. Um, what you imagine is in the father's heart as he applies this situation to your life, right? Like if you think God's done with me, that's what this is. He's done with me. This is God driving me from the house and hoping I never come back. That's hard to take. If you think, no, this is God healing me. This is, this is God fitting me for glorious service in his kingdom. Then the exact same experience, you know, can, can generate a very different response in your, in your own heart. Yeah. Yeah, good. Anyone else want to jump in on that? I think it's a very important topic, particularly coming coming as we are out of a a season of extended peace and prosperity, where a lot of our folks are maybe facing their first experience of affliction and wondering, how do I read this? Mm -hmm. You know, I think a a helpful passage is actually the 1 Corinthians 11 passage about the Lord's Supper, 
Yeah. Um, where you, you actually do have God's discipline where several of the people are, are dying believers because they've taken the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner, but you actually see those three ideas, um, punishment, uh, discipline and condemnation in one verse in verse 32, where he says, but when we are judged by the Lord, or you could, you know, I, I, I don't know if I see as much uh, distinction between punishment and discipline, but, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Yeah. You see it right there like that God judges his children. He disciplines them in order that they might not be condemned along with the world. And then when I think about discipline in my own life, um, I, I tend to, there, there, are, there have been very clear moments where I think the Lord has disciplined me for sin. But I also think that as a believer, if we understand discipline to be a form of discipling, correcting, yeah. um, I think the Lord is always active in disciplining me in that he's not just addressing sin, but he's also seeking to produce character. So he's going to allow circumstances in my life that are going to cause me to uh, grow in endurance and, and perseverance and uh, patience and, and the fruit of the spirit. Right. So, um, so I feel like the discipline of the Lord in, in one sense is always active in my life. And yet there are also very unique moments where I feel like it's very clear that the Lord has confronted me over sin in this very moment. And I need to repent in light of that and turn and get back on the narrow path. Yeah, well, well said. Mark, were you jumping in there and muted, or were you just getting excited and nodding along? Yeah, yeah, I'm excited and not, but, it, you know, the, the illustration in Hebrews is very good when it talks about as a father, and mo mm -hmm. I think most of us are fathers, and we know this, that there are negative disciplines we bring into our children's lives, and there are positive disciplines, uh, and both of them are ultimately, because we're good fathers, we want our children to be happy, and we say, you know, we know that that without the discipline, you could have some short-term temporal happiness. But if you don't do your homework, you're going to be miserable because you're not going to get a job. So yeah. I'm going to introduce some positive discipline into your life to bring you lasting happiness. And I think that's the picture God is using there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I punish my kids so that they're not condemned by the world. And I tell them that all the time. Like, I'm punishing you now because punishment from a dad who loves you more than he loves himself is way better than condemnation by the world, right? When the, when the boss just fires you and says, don't come back, that's bad. When, when daddy says, I'm taking your phone and I'm not giving it back till you do your homework, that's, you can survive that. Yeah, exactly. My kids hear the line, I, I love you too much to let you have your own weight. Yeah, I'm going to use that too. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's, Peter, just, I, I'm going to throw the closing Psalm your way. And I'm going to do that this, uh, because you, you actually talked about this. I can't remember now if it was, I must've been last. Was it last week that you were yeah, talking it was about? Last week, but we, were, we were talking about the song of songs and, and we were running out of time. So I wanted to jump in and talk about Psalm 45 and that, and, but we didn't have time. So yeah. we, we have the chance this week. Psalm 45 to me feels like it should be another chapter in the song of songs and everything we talked about last week with respect to how to interpret the song. Uh, of songs falls on Psalm 45. Walk us through it, and uh, and then we'll use it to uh, to land our time in prayer. Yeah. So you know, real quick, Psalm 45 is really a love song. Um, in a sense, you could say it's a royal wedding. You're you're being invited into a royal wedding between a king and his bride. Um, you know, Calvin argues that this is Solomon. Um, in his, do you, do you ever wonder if it's the exact same two characters as Song of Songs, or is that just me? 
Oh, it's possible. It's very likely. I mean, if we get to heaven and it is, I'm going to be so happy. I'll already be happy, but I will be extra happy because I think it might be. I mean, that's what Calvin argues. Calvin argues that it's Solomon. Well, if me and Calvin are saying it. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with Calvin. So I'll argue with you, but not Calvin. (laughs) Keep going. I'm interrupting. Um, Yeah. So it's this royal wedding between this king and and his bride. And um, Calvin argues that it's Solomon and his bride from uh, Egypt. Um, I don't know where he fully gets that from, but, but, you know, as you read through it, it's clearly speaking about, you know, the Israel's king and, and this beautiful bride, but, but the focus is actually on the king. Uh, There's this delight in the king. And as we go through, you'll see that fundamentally, um, and Calvin argues this, that this is actually about Christ and his bride. It's about Jesus, who we see here because this king is more than just human. He, he's God himself, which the psalm declares. Um, and so you have, I think what you have is this, this back and forth between the bride towards her groom and the groom then speaking back to her. Um, you know, I was reading Calvin's commentary on this and he, he basically like unpacks a little bit about Solomon and then, um, you know, the wife of Solomon. But then he's like, okay, now let's go back to Christ and his church. And he just shows all these beautiful connections um, so well, when I, you read this psalm for the first time, you're like, "What? What is this doing in the Bible? This is yeah. this is just a poem about a super handsome bride or a super handsome groom and a really beautiful bride." And you're like, "Did I need that this morning?" Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But, but then you realize it's Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and basically, one verses one to nine is pure delight in the King. Yeah. 10 to 15 is instruction and the procession of the bride. And then verses 16 to 17 is you have the offspring, so to speak, of the groom, uh, which is they're all princes all over the earth. Um, so I, I think it's just a beautiful picture. And, it, and it's, I think it's helped me realize that we need to, as Christians, especially in our reform circles, not shy away from very romantic language mm-hmm. when it comes to God. Um, and even in our worship, we tend to mock worship music that, that speaks of God in a romantic way. Um, yeah. But I think we ought to be open to some of that as long as it's good. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, we are, we're heady right, yeah. by nature. Yeah. And there's a sense in which Psalm 45 is a rebuke to that. It, it mm-hmm. is all kinds of, of emotional and, and visceral. And, and I just thought it was a great place for us to land because, you know, we've been talking about, could you be content if it was just you and God in a, in a desert of bread and water? And, and that's what this psalm is about. This psalm is about the delight that the bride has in, in the groom and the, and the delight. And there's no mention of any other things. They don't say, and we're going on a great, you know, vacation. And we've got a great home waiting for us when we get back. And we've got, you know, a table full of, you know, raven uh, in the desert. No, no, no. It's just, it's just you and me, baby. And that's enough. And uh, so I just thought that'd be a great, a great place for us to land. Just, just a reminder in this COVID-19 thing is everything else is being stripped from you. I don't know if you've lost vacations. I don't know if you, if your uh, date night routine has been disrupted, if all your creature comforts are gone. I know I went through like, and I, I'm, I repent of this, like, and I'm wearing my baseball shirts right now. I went through like a three week, I can't be happy without baseball phase and, uh, and repented of that. And, and it's just me and Jesus in the desert. And you know what? Jesus is awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's land there. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. Thank you for this reminder. Lord, you are enough. You are good. You are 
sweeter than honey from the comb. Uh, Lord, you, you are marvelous. Every word of yours is life. Every precept is truth and health. And uh, Lord, if, if we should have nothing else but, but have you, uh, then we shall be content. Lord, teach us to long for you, to pursue you, to wake up early in the morning, to have special time, to see your face in the cleft of the rock, and to be glad. Oh, Lord, do this work in us as you are, in fact, we believe, doing it through COVID-19. Do it however you would do it, Lord, that we would have a heart that inclines wholly and entirely and joyously after you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us, panel, and uh, thank you for being with us wherever you have joined us from. We're glad that you did, and we look forward to seeing you again next week right here, 8 p.m. Thursday, Eastern Standard Time, on the uh, Into the Word Facebook page, the Into the Word YouTube page, or the TGC Canada Facebook page. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Good night, and God bless. You